We're going to do things a little different today in terms of this passage as we will just uh, work our way uh, through it. And so I want to remind you what is right before this, what we, we talked about uh, last week. Uh, in John 13, they are uh, at the feast of the Passover. Now, this was going to be what many considered to be the, the scene of the last supper. Probably the better term, as we talked about last week, is that, that it was the last Passover, or the first supper, meaning the first time they celebrated uh, communion together as that took the place of Passover. And we know that, that Jesus, within, within hours, literally, would go to the cross. And in his going to the cross, as the, the Passover lamb, there were people in Jerusalem to sacrifice that lamb that uh, uh, signified that someday uh, a Messiah would come and would save us from our sin. And we know that when Jesus went to the cross, that that, that fulfilled that exact thing. And it took place at the Passover. But before he was uh, to be arrested, before the whole plan went into place, and he does say, my time has come, where throughout the book it often says his time had not yet come, his time had not come, and, and uh, meaning for him to provide for salvation. But here he says that his time had come. But he had some teaching to do to his uh, disciples. And as we talked about last week, it's, you know, anyone toward the end of their life, when they have something they really, really want to say, you want to pay attention. And anytime Jesus has something to say, you really want to pay attention. But when Jesus is within hours of the end of his life, you really want to hear. Now, what, what is his priority? What is it that, that he wants to leave with them indelibly as they uh, will eventually recall that night? And so they were for supper. And in that gathering, he did what in their view would be the unthinkable. He washed their feet. It was totally inappropriate, inappropriate in the sense of the custom of the day, of, of who it was that should wash someone's feet. Not only with him as being a rabbi, should he not be doing that? But they didn't even uh, permit those who had uh, Jewish slaves. They weren't even permitted to. That was for the, the, the Greek slaves to do. And so here is Jesus 
the king of the universe who takes off his outer clothing and he goes from disciple to disciple, including Judas, and he washed the filth off their feet. Peter, of course, didn't like that. No, you can't wash my feet, never. And, and Jesus says, if, if, I, if I don't, then you have nothing to do with me. And so Peter, of course, always one with the answer, says, well, then wash all of me. He wanted Jesus. He just didn't get it that Jesus needed him for him to have part of it. So we see both the actual illustration and the spiritual illustration. And, and that is for us that if, if he doesn't wash us, then we have no part in him either. So then it says he... In, in essence, after he had washed all of their feet, had that interaction with Peter and, and even hinted at, he basically said, you know, not all of you are clean. And he was really talking about Judas at that point. And so it says that he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place. So he returned in essence to be the rabbi, the teacher, and he begins to teach them again eternal truths. And so he says, what I've done here, it's an example. And I want you to do this to one another. And you will be blessed if you now as he continued to teach that's where we're going to pick up with verse 18 he says this in all this I'm not speaking of all of you I know whom I have chosen and he's not talking about salvation here he's talking about called out for to be my disciples I know whom I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, when he says the scripture will be fulfilled, you can see down in the margin of your Bible, it will, it, it will say where that came from. It came from uh, a psalm. The psalm was about David, but it was also a prophecy about Jesus. Jesus here says I'm fulfilling prophecy. Why is that significant? Well, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18, 18, you can, you can turn or you can just listen. I'm going to read it quickly. It says this, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So here's the point. Here's, here's why I'm going back to that way back in Deuteronomy. That's what God's people were looking for. They were looking for the one that would be the prophet. This 
prophet that would always tell the truth of what is going on now and what would go on in the future. And so here is Jesus saying that prophecy is fulfilled in me. I have to wonder when we looked at the woman at the well and, and she's in interaction with Jesus and, and she says this, I can see that you're a prophet. I have to wonder, could have been thinking of that Deuteronomy passage that it would be the Messiah that would be the true prophet. But, but here's, here's the point of what's going on here. Why he points out uh, that it was important that here prophecy is being fulfilled. Jesus explains, verse 19, back in John. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So here's the point. Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed. He he knew that, that he was going to be arrested. He knew that they would falsely convict him. He knew that he would go to the cross. And he knew how difficult that was going to be for his disciples who had followed him, who had sought to, to follow him faithfully. And so he knew that there would come a time, and, and by the way, he was right how difficult it was for them. We, we see uh, what their, all their reactions were uh, during that time. But he also knew that it, it's likely at, at some point that they would be sitting around and saying, what happened? Have you ever done that where you've just been through something and you say, what just happened? Well, I, I can picture them after the crucifixion basically saying, what just happened? And he knew that one of them, maybe more of them, if he, if he told them this, would remember that Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. Why would that be important? So that they would not say things, you know, when, when they say what happened, just happened, they wouldn't say, well, things got out of control and, and we don't know what happened and so on. One of them, some of them would say, and John did evidently, would say, well, you know what? What happened is exactly what Jesus said would happen because he is the Messiah. That's what happened. In fact, things were taking place exactly like he said they would. Now it goes on and we, we see it talk about the betrayer here. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So, so here's a question we could ask. If he predicted it, he 
predicted that, that one of them would betray him? Why was he troubled in his soul? Why was he troubled in If he not only knew this was going to take place, but, but this was actually the plan. Well, it's because, yes, Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. And here was Judas. Here is the one that, that Jesus had called out who had been with him all during his ministry. Here was the one that Jesus had just washed his feet and even in doing that, he knew he would be him. But Jesus also knew destiny. He knew what, that it wasn't just about this course of events that were taking place right then but he knew what Judas's destiny was. And so he's troubled in his spirits. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, by the way, that's John. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that in the gospel of John, that's how he describes himself? You know, one of the disciples the one Jesus loved. Well, this probably wasn't anything new to them. They knew that he had a special relationship with John. And so that is how he's described here. Jesus loved all his disciples, but evidently his relationship with John was extra close. So one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now, you know, I, I like to laugh about Peter, and I told you last week I really love Peter. Uh, but this is a little surprising and a little bit out of character. Because Peter is always the one that blurts it out. He's always the one that, that says what others are thinking. That, you know, they want to say it, but Peter will say it and then reap the consequences, typically. But here what we see is something different. We see Peter must not have been right beside Jesus. John is right beside him. And by the way, many commentators speculate that one on the other side of Jesus, actually in the place of honor, was Judas. The reason they speculate that is because he was close enough to dip the bread in. To be honored only because he was fulfilling God's ultimate plan. But here, here we have Peter kind of saying to, to John, ask him who it is. I have to wonder whether Peter, knowing his own self, knowing his own weaknesses, wondered, is it me? 
I know deep down what I'm like. Could it be me? And he didn't want the answer given to everyone. So verse 25, so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I have a morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So here he basically identifies his betrayer. That's, it's him. So John knew at that point. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now we know exactly what was taking place here, what he was going to do. He was going to betray Jesus, but nobody else knew. Verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he uh, should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. That almost seems out of place. Why does he say that? Well, one of the recurring ideas, as we talked about earlier today, is that, that John, throughout the gospel, from the very beginning of the gospel and all the way up to here, he equates light with salvation and he equates darkness with being lost, being outside of Christ as condemnation. Listen to those themes so far in, in John. John 1.4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1.9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John 3.19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the, the light of life. That wasn't even all of the places where, where light and, and darkness are, are contrasted. But here what we see is, is Judas finally and ultimately turning away from Jesus and literally going out into the darkness. But it wasn't just because there was an absence of, of street, street lights. He was going into eternal darkness. And that's what was taking place. That's the state of 
choose to turn their back on Christ. But the good news is this. The light is still there. The light is still there for those who would believe rather than turn their back on Jesus and and go into the darkness. The light is still there welcoming them into salvation by believing, by trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life. That's the light. And that's the opposite of what was going on. And then we see uh, in the in the next verses, the glorified Christ. Now, have you ever been in a group of people where one person can can bring the whole group down, and when they leave, everything changes? By the way, if you can't think of ever experiencing that you're probably the one that brings the whole group down. (laughs) Sorry, just have to be honest here. I think that's basically, that's basically what happened here though. What we see is Judas leaves and the whole, the whole tone and tenor of the room changes. And Jesus back to teaching them about who he is and what all this means. Look what it says, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, here we go. It's about to happen. The time is, is, is finally here. The plan had begun. Now here's the thing. To look at somebody on the cross, on a a cross, it would not be a normal reaction to say that person's being glorified. That would not have been an uncommon sight that you would see someone being crucified. They would do it in a very public way as examples to others. But I suspect for most they would simply turn away when they would see uh, crosses where someone was being crucified. But for Jesus, he says, that's when I'll be glorified and the Father will be glorified. Why? Because that's exactly the plan. Because I am, will at that point be doing exactly what I and the Father planned out for your salvation. When Jesus uh, was incarnate, when he took on the flesh, he did that in order to die. 
When he was born, he was born in order to die. When he lived his life, he lived his life in a perfect way in order to die. And he is arrested and and all of the things that are taking place betrayed in order to die so that he could pay the penalty for the sins of those of us that can't pay for our own sins. That's why he said, I'm, I'm going to be glorified. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Look how he addresses these grown, rugged men. Little children. I understand that term because that's how I address my grandchildren. I will often say to them, and I don't know how it comes across to people that don't know me or whatever, I'll say, um, hey, little girl or little boy. And, and it's, it's, it's habit, but when it's coming from me to my grandchild, it's a term of endearment. And it's always meant that way. And that's how it's meant from Jesus. These were ones that that within hours would feel all alone, would feel abandoned. And he's saying, look, you're, you're my little children. Don't you forget that. And then he goes on and he says, verse 13, commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another now interesting things about what he says here he says a new commandment I give you it's not really new not saying he's wrong here because there's a reason he did this. But it's not a new concept. You go all the way back into the, the, the Old Testament, go back into Leviticus and it says you are to love your... It's new. Why is he, why is he saying that? Well, I think it's new because of the context when he says this in the past before Jesus before the cross they had heard the command to love their neighbors as themselves now when Jesus washes their feet when uh, Jesus would go to the cross they would see what love looked like they would see that it's not some surfacy some outward kind of thing. It was all-encompassing. Now he's showing them. Love was walking among them. Here's the other thing. 
Their love for one another was about to be tested big time when Jesus was arrested. How would they treat one another when they were in the middle of this crisis? And Jesus is saying to them, here's what you need to know. They'll know you're related to me if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote an essay in many years back called The Mark of a Christian. And in it, he, he basically said, you know, there's all kinds of, of marks of Christians and he, he would list things and uh, things even like wearing a cross and so on and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But his point was, the real mark of a Christian, anyone can wear a cross, it's not a bad thing, but the real mark of a Christian is if you have love for one another. That will distinguish a, a real follower of Christ from one who is a follower in name only. Schaefer said this, our relationship with one another is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic, not apologizing, but proving of something. He says it's the final thing when people see real Christian community because there's no way to explain it except there must be a real Christ. He said, if we do not show love to one, to one another, the world has a right to question whether Christianity is true. You are a loving group of people. I fairly frequently get asked this question, and I don't know what the right answer is for it. The question from somebody in our congregation who is going through a difficult time and, and love has been poured out upon them by others in the congregation. Sometimes they, they say things like, I, I didn't even know people knew who I was. And, and then there's the question that I don't know the answer to. And when they say, how do people without Christ go through things like this? Or how do people without a church family go through these kinds of things? And while I've seen people try to, my only answer is, I don't know. Without Christ, and without the love of a church family. He goes on in this passage, and, and this is sandwiched about loving one another right in between Judas and Peter. <laughs> Here we get to Peter again. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And, and here, basically, I think he's, he's telling, look, you can't follow me to the cross, but you will follow me in death. And he would. 
Verse 37, Peter told him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Several applications here. The first one is, it's easy to see that that good intentions are never enough. Here is Peter, and I believe he really meant it when he said, I I will die for you. I I think he, he meant it with every fiber in his being, but that resolve didn't even last hours until it went away. And fear took over. Good intentions are never enough. Secondly, overconfidence is dangerous. Oh, Peter. I don't know what these guys will do, but I will die for you. He was confident in himself. The third thing we see is Jesus is the Savior and we're not. Peter says, I will die for you. He's saying, I will save you, Jesus. And all along, it was going to be just the opposite. Peter couldn't save himself. He certainly couldn't save Jesus. But Jesus could die for Peter. And that brings us back to him and and us and to know that our strength is weak. Contrast this weakness of Peter, though, with Judas's weakness. When Judas was done with what he went to do, he had nowhere to go for restoration. He had no hope at that point when he forsook Jesus. Peter, even when he failed, and we, even when we fail, Jesus, when we trust him alone for our eternal life, will restore us. That's the beauty. That's the point of the cross. The whole point of the gospel is there is restoration for we who cannot restore ourselves. And we need Jesus. If we're going to persevere, we need Jesus. If we're really going to love one another, We need Jesus. Let's bow together. Lord, we we tend to be either overconfident or underconfident. Overconfident in ourselves when we try to work our way to you or be good enough for heaven. 
and underconfident in what you did on the cross that was absolutely enough that we can never add to. Lord, will you give us faith, trust to believe that. And Lord, even as we, in a few moments when we talk to one another, when we leave this place, will you give us a love for one another, a genuine, deep love for one another that the world may know we really belong to Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.